Ladies and gentlemen, am I audible? Uh, my name is Naomi Bliven, and I'm a member of the board of PEN American Center, and speaking on behalf of the board and everybody in Penn, I welcome you to an afternoon of readings by writers about New York, um, our city. I am a native of Manhattan, which Shakespeare has so aptly described that this sceptered isle, this precious stone set in the Silver Sea. And I think that is why I have been given the kind of job that was invented by Tammany Hall. I am going to introduce a lot of people so famous they don't need any introduction. And our first speaker is Jimmy Breslin, a newspaper man who was in Staten Island, according to this morning's Daily News. And he's a novelist, and he's here. And he will be reading from his new novel, He Got Hungry and Forgot His Manners. Mr. Breslin. say hello. Uh, this is in between trips to Staten Island for the New York Daily News or to the courtroom for the New York Daily News. I've been writing a novel which is just finished and it will be out in the fall. It's called He Got Hungry and Forgot His Manners. It's about a priest from, who was sent here from the African missions uh, to assist the Pope on his journey through America to be an advanced man and to uh, point out that sex is the problem in America. And uh, he brings with him a, a huge man there called Great Big, who is a cannibal and becomes the first cannibal in the history of New York City who is black. Uh, we've had uh, many others. Now, at one point, the priest, when he arrives in, in uh, in the city is, is deserted by his connections and winds up in an obscure, deserted parish in East New York. And he has no money, and his only recourse, he finds out, is to go to the welfare to try and get on the welfare rolls. And I now describe the first uh, time he is faced with our welfare system. He arrived at the what is known as the uh, East New York Income Maintenance Center, which handles 16,000 people who have no income, thereby learning how we use our language in this country. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'll say, and I'll just pick up one little bit. When he arrived at the Income Maintenance Center, Cosgrove bought a bag of wise 22% more potato chips for a quarter and ate them by the water fountain. When the potato chips ran out, he smacked the bag in hopes of getting the 22% more. His smacking blended in with the smacking sound in the rest of the room. A woman in a red beret next to him was doing the same thing. They forgot to put in my extra percents, the woman said, finding nothing more in her bag. 
Now, sometime in the afternoon, Cosgrove found himself at the window, and the clerk took his application blank, his request for an application blank, sniffed, and told him to take a seat. All right. Whereupon, she pulled the curtain in his face and disappeared and came out a door wearing a bright purple dress. She's going for coffee right in my face, somebody yelled. Going for coffee in my face, somebody else said. On another line, Disco Girl, a young woman from a welfare hotel who came with him, holding a blue Slurpee to her lips said, going for coffee in my face. Now, now on another line, the large, as she said that the large woman in the purple dress, her chin out, the welfare clerk, she was a chin as strong as a radiator, sauntered out of the waiting room. Then the fly girl flounced off the line and headed for the door with her boyfriend right after her. She going for coffee, I'm going to the G building, the fly girl called out. The fly girl is one well-dressed trying to get on welfare. You gambling girl, disco girl called out. I'd be fooling them at the G building while you'd be standing on your feet so long they'd disintegrate, the fly girl said. With a wave of disdain, she walked out. Cosgrove asked what the G building was. Disco girl smiled and clapped her hands. That's where the crazy doctors are. The G building is at Kings County Hospital. They got another G building on the 11th floor at Brookdale Hospital. If you can't if you get tired waiting online here and you go to the G building and act crazy enough, they grab you right up and sign you for checks right there just to get rid of you. <laughs> Why doesn't everybody just go there, Cosgrove said. Because if you act too good, you get too crazy, they throw you in a padded cell. Sometimes you go there to try to get a check, you don't come back for 30 days. Now we have it. The welfare worker with the powerful chin, see I'm just switching. The welfare worker with the powerful chin returned. The curtain was thrown back and the line moved painfully slow. From her line, Disco Girl hollered to Cosgrove, you step ahead now, my little brother Baby Rock here, he be bringing you your papers. Cosgrove saw the kid burrow into the line and grab, and in it took only 15 minutes, and, and he returned with two New York State Department of Social Services applications for colon, public assistance, medical assistance, food stamps, services. Cosgrove left his line and stood alongside Disco Girl and Baby Rock. Baby Rock had Hostess cream cakes, orange soda, and wise 22% more potato chips. Cosgrove took out his reading glasses and looked at the social services applications. He had seen papers such as these when he went over his final university honors level tests. At, on the welfare application, in two places, in large letters, there was the warning, do not write in shaded area. But at the same time, in the shaded area, there were 48 boxes to be filled in, and there were blue shaded lines all over the, fur, all over the page. In the first white area, there were so many blanks to fill in that Cosgrove ran a hand over his brow. This is a priest, Cosgrove, a little completely nuts guy. Upon turning the page, he was dazzled by a centerfold of, of both blue and white and of so many blanks to fill in that he quickly shut the booklet. Seeing this, Disco Girl screamed, 
you met, you're, you're no better than we are. I was afraid every time I opened this thing. It's just like a Burger King application. You fill in the blanks. She waved her pen and made a couple of quick strokes on her own application. Is that what you say, the woman behind him on the line said. You say it's the same as Burger King. Just like signing up for hamburgers, that's what you say? That's exactly what I'd be saying. Then why did you write here? The woman snatched the application and held it up triumphantly. Immediately over the sign that said, do not write in shaded areas, here was disco girls writing right through the shading. She signed in the shaded area, one of the women, Dawn Moore, said. That gets you no food, a woman on the line said. She signed wrong, they send the food, mo food money to the wrong place, somewhere else. Signed in the wrong place. They pay the rent to the wrong place, the place where you don't live. Disco girl, mortified, had a hand clapped to her mouth in embarrassment. Too many, one word was out of there, I'm reading it. On. Then she began laughing. When I got my job in Burger King, they had me sign in the shade. I kept thinking here I was just writing down for Burger King. Cosgrove looked at his form. There was a blue box saying, check which programs you are applying for. The boxes in the blue box said A, cash assistance, B, medical assistance, C, food stamps, D, services, E, expedited food stamps. Disco girl told Cosgrove to check each. There was a sixth box with no name to it and sitting in blue shading. Disco girl held the pen directly over the box. The women online shrieked, don't you touch that child. Disco girl held the pen directly over the box. This be the double or nothing box. <laughs> Come on, we go for everything. We either get nothing or we get a house. <clears throat> Her brother, Baby Rock, clapped his hands. We go for a house. Cosgrove looked, an instinct told him to tell her not to do it, but everybody insisted, and with a loud cheer, Disco Girl checked the empty box on the blue area and jumped up screaming, I hope I get my house. Now, I would just like to write, uh, read to you one more thing that I have been spending my time with uh, the last couple of days. I think you mentioned New York. I think it's very important you look at it. And uh, you not look at it, but you just hear one thing which I think is magnificent. Uh, uh, it, is, it was not written by Breslin. I'm not this good. And uh, uh, it's just, it is the, the, give me a second, I have it here. Very important, yes. This is the collected works of Bernard Goetz. <laughs> and <clears throat> I would just like to tell you what, what we are up against at the end of a long trail that went for 28 months while politicians were afraid in this city to do anything with a subway shooting which upset the nation and had everyone taking sides and suddenly all young blacks on the subway were, became savages instantly and forever and the certain people such as the, uh, I would say, the New York Post and CBS Television News ran neck and neck in canonizing Mr. Goetz and placing fear into the 
subways of this system more than we've ever seen in my time. It did the most damage to this gentleman to our lives, I think, than anyone in my time. I think your Supreme Court decision, my humble opinion, the Supreme Court decision which allows them, which says that it's all right to kill only blacks if that's the only ones that are around to execute. Don't worry about the fact that their backgrounds or the fact we've held them down and caused them, have just killed them. That decision to overlook uh, even-handed justice, I think, came directly out of the Bernard Getz shooting. And this, suddenly, after all this time and all this anger and all this depression, here is what we have on a witness stand. I read directly from his transcript. The fear, in this case, the fear is a funny thing. You see, this is real combat. That's what it is. It's the only word to describe it. It's you're afraid and up to that instance when I had, and I know this sounds horrible and cold-blooded, but when I had verification, you know, you know what it is. You don't think anymore because the time to think, you, you stop, you don't think. All you do is just, I was telling Officer Foote, this is Getz being interviewed in the New Hampshire Police Department. I was telling Officer Foote that I operate with two levels to my mind. There's an upper level and a lower level. And on the upper level of my mind, when something happens, I just turn it off. That's the important thing. You turn off the upper level of your mind and you react with the lower level. That's the important thing. You react. You go in a different state of mind. And a lot of things change, as I explained. It's, it's uh, the, uh, your sense of perception changes. Your abilities change. Speed is everything. Speed is everything. You move and you don't hear. It's just like being in combat. You, your perceptions are such that you don't hear the cannons going off next to you. Speed is everything. The policeman, Chris Domian, said, okay, Bernie, Bernie, look at me, okay? And that is the man they attempted to canonize. One detective said more than all the newspapers in this city put together. He just looked across the table and knowing what he had on his hands, all right, look at me, please, figuring uh, he, when Getz came into the room, they, he thought he was going to see Charles Bronson. Instead, he looked at this absolute fruitcake and all he could say is, please look at me so I could look into his eyes to see if we should commit him here or wait till they do it in New York, which they didn't do. Thank you. Our next uh, reading will be by Wesley Brown. Mr. Brown's a vice president of American Pen, and his play, Boogie Woogie and Booker T, was produced by the New Federal Theater last year. His last, most recent novel is Tragic Muse, Magic, and he's going to read about jazz, Monday night jazz at the Village Gate. Mr. Brown. Uh, this is entitled, Which Sound Are You On? It was the end of October 1976, a week before the presidential election. 
Rumor had it that the nation's attention was on Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. However, it was Monday night, and my attention was on the village gate in Greenwich Village, where Dexter Gordon and Archie Shepp were appearing for one night. Monday Night Jazz has always held a particular excitement for me. Unlike going to a club on the weekend when the music is often a background for general conversation and the transaction of ordering drinks, Monday night audiences are known to be as serious about listening to jazz as other people are about what they eat. Of course, the two music musicians I was going to hear had something to do with my anticipation as I walked east on Bleecker Street. When I first began seriously to listen to jazz as a teenager, Dexter Gordon was one of the first musicians whose records I bought. Gordon came to prominence during the bop era of the 40s. At that time, the two main schools of tenor saxophone playing were embodied in Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young. Gordon was one of the first tenor players to combine aspects of both musicians into his playing and come out with a distinct style of his own. He, in turn, influenced the two most important tenor saxophonists to emerge in the 50s, Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane. When Dexter Gordon began recording for Blue Note Records in 1960, he came to New York briefly and played at a now defunct club known as the Jazz Gallery. I was neither old enough to get in nor old enough looking to sneak in. Gordon left the States for Europe in the early 60s and on infrequent trip, trips back, I was never able to catch him in a live performance. So I had to content myself with listening to his records which I bought religiously every time a new one was released. It was only fitting that Archie Shepp, another tenor saxophone player, would be on the bill with Dexter Gordon. Philadelphia bred, Shepp, while being in the vanguard of change in jazz during the 60s, has always acknowledged the, the tradition that shaped him, which owes something to John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Dexter Gordon, Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, Eddie Lockjaw Davis, Lucky Thompson, Sidney Bechet, and Illinois Jacquette. So what I heard at the Village Gate that Monday night was a synthesis of two eras and two distinct styles, each drawing something from the other. Time would only be a factor in the way each approached his music. It would not, however, be a barrier. The first set had already begun when I arrived at the gate. I could hear the muffled sound of music coming from the floor below as I paid the cover charge. Walking into the bandstand area, the full force of the music hit me. The sensation was similar to the disorientation one feels when entering a darkened movie theater. In this instance, it would be a few minutes before I became part of the emotionally charged atmosphere. I walked quickly through the blur of people, lights, tables, and chairs, trying not to draw attention to myself. But of course, people stare as I pass. I wonder how much actual consideration goes on when we look at one another in public. Even the most striking people in appearance never seem to hold my attention beyond initial curiosity. Maybe that's because in a city with the population density of New York, it's very difficult to make distinctions. With all the stimulation we're exposed to, it becomes almost impossible to respond to dimensions of people beyond the superficial. Eyes reel me in and, 
and when the and when the interest abates, I become additional foliage, contributing to the thick steaminess of the club. There are no seats, but I find a section of the wall to lean against in the back. My eyes frame the club in a tableau, and I'm aware of the barn-like beams dividing it into sections. Red and green lights are a glowing fallout over the audience as the musicians traffic in a rhythm that splits the options between stop and go. Deep sea diving helmet receptacles hang from the ceiling, housing light that streaks in a fizz toward the bandstand. There's also the hum of voices as people engage in small talk. Playing over people talking has driven many a jazz musician over the edge of cringe. They have always had to fight for the respect accorded classical musicians automatically. The concert hall was not always available, so for a long time, clubs and bars were the only places where jazz could be heard. While clubs have an intimacy that gives the music an immediacy lacking in a concert hall, the prevailing jazz scene in bars <coughs> is often a front for seedy agendas that have nothing to do with music. Working in such an atmosphere has exact, exacted a psychic price on most musicians. Ironically, the total disrespect shown to their art often drives jazz musicians to become more for formidable than the opposition of their surroundings. Unlike the view many have of classical music, the reverence for jazz does not precede the experience of it. So on this night, the audience was commanded into listening by the sheer force of the music and not because of good manners. I watch people sitting by themselves or with friends. Without exception, they all are in that contraction known as alone. Since music is made from all those things we most need to be alone about, we have all come to the right place. And although our business is with the music, the isolation from others is not personal. As Amiri Baraka says in his poem, Ladybug, I've got nothing against you, but I've got to get back home. So here we are at the village gate, trying to get back home in a city where everybody is their own hipster, and hoping these men on the bandstand will help us get there. Why musicians? Because the best have always believed with Charlie Parker that music is your own experience, your thoughts, your wisdom. If you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. Dexter stands off to the side, keeping the sound of the group under surveillance with foot tapping. When I first became aware of him, he was in his late 30s. Now he is in his early 50s. Gray reaches up the side of his face to the temples. A well-groomed mustache, grizzly with gray, gives him a distinguished air. I've always been impressed by the way his towering size paralleled his sound. But seeing him for the first time in a live performance makes me realize that it's his face that accounts for his awesome appearance. While acknowledging applause after a solo or listening to the others in his group, a mischievous grin breaks out across his pecan face. There's also something unwavering in the set of his eyes, nose, and mouth that imbues him with an unapologetic sense of where he is in the world. He finishes an extended solo to rousing applause, and instead of dipping his head in a, bo in a bow, he raises his saxophone, sharing the acclamation with the vessel through which his most intimate juices flow. The tune ends, and Dexter introduces the other members of the group. Woody Shaw on trumpet, Lewis Hayes on drums, Stafford James on bass, and Ronnie Matthews on piano. 
At this time, we like to do a Horace Silver tune entitled Strolling. On this middle range tune that is neither an up-tempo sprint nor an elaborate drawling ballad, I get a bit distracted by small collisions of bottles and glasses resembling the shimmering of chandeliers. Dexter and the group reclaim my attention as they approximate the s with sound the ways of strolling. Stafford James's plucks on the bass are sonic booms. He could even be dancing as he does a gyration with his bass. A trumpet in Woody Shaw's hands is a telescope for his mouth. He has a bearing that seems determined to restore snakes to their former state. Ronnie Matthews' fingers give pulse to the piano while his head, almost prostrate over the keyboard, listens to the startling answers the piano gives in response to questions posed by his fingers. And Lewis Hayes is heavily into demolition, dropping unexpected salvos on the snare drum. Like the best drummers, Hayes' playing scatters time everywhere, building one cluster of percussion on top of another and then dismantling the sound with the finesse and control of a juggler, reducing the number of objects in motion back to one. Hayes' eyes are closed. His face glistens from a heavy lather of perspiration. His arms and legs, legs carry on like four multiple choice questions, with the only possible answer being all of the above. He's loose. He almost seems to be unscrewing. Damn. Now he's got me grunting and growling like Earl Garner. The end of the tune, they end the tune just as all the holiness church in me is about to be released. After the applause abates, Dexter steps to the mic and recites the lyrics of the ballad, You've Changed, in a voice that brings to mind the deep registers of singer Arthur Prysock. The band is dead on his heels, is dead on the heels of his voice with the opening theme. Woody Shaw takes the first solo, meandering in and out of the melody. In words, it might sound something like this. You've changed, and I, and I just want you to know that I know what you think I didn't know, which is you showed strange for a little bit of change in your money and your mind. You know what I mean? Dexter enters the dialogue and proceeds to give a recitation on how the person or persons in question have changed, exhibiting an incredible range from high, shrill sweetness to the lows of a foghorn. When I think I've heard everything, he floors me with a vibrato that quavers like the bleat of a billy goat. This is not simply technical virtuosity. This is a sensibility conversant with life in all of its rich and unpredictable configurations. Dexter continues to assemble, disassemble, and reassemble his ideas, adding a remnant of a popular song here and a nursery rhyme there. He's like a Boy Scout who knows all the knots but is not content to duplicate the routine of demonstrating exactly how each knot is tied. All talking in the club has ceased. No one is drinking or ordering anything. The only distract distraction is breathing. I'm reminded of something Gordon said about the New York jazz scene when he was here during the early 60s. He expressed the view that many musicians didn't really seem to, be, to enjoy playing that there didn't seem to be very much warmth in the music. The 60s were a time of much stridency in America. Events didn't warrant much expression of joy. However, the joy and exuberance that characterized Gordon's playing in 1960 is still present. 
I doubt if this is a result of his refusal to acknowledge the public and private horrors of everyday existence. The enthusiasm in Gordon's playing does, however, convey an understanding that life is and will continue to be a strident proposition, that we must take our own, that we must make our own good times and not allow official or unofficial grapevines to be the sole arbiter of our pleasure. For Dexter Gordon, joy is not a, a state of mind, but a fact of life. It isn't something he decides, it just happens. Sometimes I forget this. Tonight he has reacquainted me with this attitude toward life. Dexter ends You've Changed in a register as thin and transparent as gauze. Les Davis from the jazz radio station WRVR comes up to, on the stand and reintroduces the band as they go, again as they go off. In all the years that I've listened to him on radio, this is the first time I've ever seen him. Davis looks vulnerable. His movements seem tentative and not as assured as his voice. I've never formed a mental picture of him in my head, but it's amazing how awesome the disembodied presence of his trained broadcasting voice is compared to his actual physical stature. With a gig like his, you definitely need a sense of proportion. After listening to your own voice, the rest of you could become a letdown. The place, this place feels like Birdland, he says. He's right about that. At least for tonight, the village gate seems to be caught up in an electricity reminiscent of Birdland. We're going to take a, a short break, Davis continues, and then Archie Shep and his group will come on. I haven't heard Archie play in several years. In recent years, he's been teaching at the University of Massachusetts. A major influence on Archie's playing has, was Sonny Rollins, who was influenced by Dexter Gordon. Given that tradition, I wonder if Archie will be up to the standards set by Dexter. Once again, I get involved in the traffic of the club. Waitresses frantically table hop, taking bar orders, carrying trays, receiving payment, and making change. This simultaneous balancing act of chores is performed with disinterested competence. Obviously, this is the only challenge the gig poses. One black waitress in particular, particularly grace with an I don't mind and it don't matter aura. She goes about her duties in a way that is meticulous without really being involved in them. Her hair is pulled back tight against her scalp tied and tied in a kerchief. I follow the slope of her apple butter brown forehead down into the bridge of her nose. Her movements are matter of fact, suggesting no more than getting from here to there. This is apparent as I watch her take an order from a man and a woman seated at a table. The man orders the, the drinks and sends out a tease that is hardly disguised. The woman with the man is in a deep funk that seems directed at the waitress. There is a retention of all expression in her face as she writes down the order and ignores them both. She is definitely not going on their cruise, having reserved her nerves for herself alone. The second set is about to start. The drummer and the piano player are on the stand laying down random changes for the other to field. Les Davis is now back on the stand. At this time, I'd like to bring on a man who has been one of the dominant figures in the direction that jazz has taken over, in over, in over the past 15 years. Ladies and gentlemen, Archie Shep. Shep emerges through a door behind the stage. His walk has the rock of a hobby horse. Once out of the shadows, he reveals a blue pinstripe suit, 
a flashy tie jacked up high in his shirt collar, not leaving very much slack for his Adam's apple. A good-looking dude, Archie's powerfully etched mocha face, picks up on everything. Sometimes his, ex his expression can shift dramatically from a spacey, boppish mask to the jubilation of a child that got what he wanted for Christmas. Archie is a gamut runner when he plays, too, which makes him an exciting artist to catch when he's at his best. Looking out, out at the audience without any gesture or acknowledgement, Shep turns to his sideman and lays down the time with his fingers. They explode into a wickedly torrid tempo. After giving them a moment to establish what he wants, Archie turns, his, turns back into the lights flooding the stand, fastens his saxophone around his neck, wets, the ch wets his chops with a few smacks, places his mouth very deliberately over the mouthpiece, and immediately races into the center of the tempo. His feet are planted squarely, and his body is in a swiveling rotation, screwing him into the floor. Archie is not merely playing for speed. His ideas are thick, developed licks, exploring a variety of concerns in his gut. I am stunned by the suddenness of Shep's statement and by the way he didn't bother to build it in stages. He may be bluffing, but I doubt it. Now Archie reaches down into his tone for more raunchiness, going even further under than low down. His hands get all stink fingerish on the valves of his axe, and he assumes the pose of that mythical young man of rather dubious character, filthy McNasty. I'm reminded of something Shep once said about his relationship to the saxophone. It is itself a paramour, a rake, a charlatan, a marvelous, lacquered 20th century invention. It is your voice. It is your heartbeat. It is your most despicable defecation. And when you get down, where you get down, you will rouse hearts with it, heal old wounds with it, and it will affirm itself to you in every instance. I can hear hyena squeals coming from Archie's horn and honking that resembles the acapella nose blowing I've heard in the streets when dudes press down on one nostril and blow coal out the other. And then the turbulence in Archie's playing subsides and quietly slips into the ballad lush light. The, clar the clarity and vigilance of his voice is mixed in the drink of a lush, staggering around, trying to make sense out of slobber. His sound is a husky kazoo, drooling from the mouth of his sax. It's as if he's had too much to drink and is trying to convince everybody that he'll still believe what he played, the what he played tonight in the morning. The transition from one state of mind to another is a poignant duality revealing how we want to live, being harassed by the way we actually do live. Archie walks off the stand, his solo trailing off with him like Frederick Douglass's words, this discussion will go on, this discussion will go on, this discussion will go on. The set ends. I'm too exhausted and exhilarated to applaud. Everyone begins to file out toward the exit. Les Davis is making some announcements, but I'm not paying attention. I am a tuning fork caught in reverberations within reverberations. I believe I'm suffering from rapture. Ornette Coleman once dedicated a concert he gave to all those whose lives could be helped by sound. Jazz is one of the most compelling sounds in my life, more dominant than the official noise given priority in the media. How if, 
However, if asked to equate the political value of listening to Dexter Gordon with the presidential news conference, most people would probably choose the latter. Our reliance in America is not on sounds communicating experience, but on those churning out information. This is unfortunate since jazz, more than any other sound, expresses the arduous task of developing one's own way or style of life, which, as quiet as it's kept, is what freedom is all about. Thank you. Our next uh, uh, author is Hortense Kalischer. She's the president of American Pen and a novelist, short story writer, who says that she occasionally writes essays. And she's a native New Yorker who has lived all over and came back uh, sensible. And uh, she has her 12th novel is going to come out next fall. It will be called Age. She's written six books of novellas and short stories and an autobiographical memoir called Herself and one book of collected stories which is going to come out after the novel Age. Today she's going to read an excerpt from her novel False Entry and a little bit, a tiny extract, a sentence or two from an essay about New York. Ms. Kalisha. May 3rd happens to be my father's birthday. And since he gave me New York, really, uh, I think that doing this is better than burning a candle. Uh, he was a rather different father. Uh, he would be 124 years old today. Don't start subtracting. Um, he married a much younger woman. But what he really gave me was history, partly, uh, and the streets and talk and a whole background that I seem to be still immersed in. It comes out in parts all the time. Uh, the family came here. They lived in the South, and they came here uh, somewhere around the turn of the last century. The first thing that I remember from when I was very little was that he told me he lost his pet greyhound in the blizzard of 88. That's a little uh, hard to combat when you're going uh, to school at a much later date. Uh, he sent me to school, a public school, um, 10 blocks away. We had to walk there three and back three times a day. Uh, so that, in effect, I wrote, I, at the age of six, walked 60 blocks a day, which didn't seem uh, strange, but it started me as a walker and uh, as a listener in New York. And in my first novel, which I'm going to read from, I think I, I tried to get at the philosophy of what it is on a, that compels me on a New York street. Later, New York would mean very different things. I, uh, for my first job out of school, I uh, 
I was an investigator in the relief department, in the welfare department. Uh, I thought of that as uh, Jimmy Breslin talked. We were tender springs just out of school. Uh, most of us were hit by this, by what we were seeing every day, in a way that uh, uh, I certainly never forgot. It changed my life. It changed my writing life materially. Um, I wrote a book later called The New Yorkers, but that's not what I'm going to read from. Uh, this is a man who is not a New Yorker, um, walking in New York. And I see that I lost my marker, so forgive me. Yeah. How did that happen? There it is. I'm uh, cutting a lot because it doesn't, um, he walks a long time. As I had first walked the streets of New York, I had been filled with amazement. Here and there on the tenement stoops, there were clusters and the bicker of children. Yet even these people put their necks in the yoke when they went on the main streets abroad. A chance encounter with a known person had a tinge of embarrassment at its edges as if one had been surprised incognito. Even lovers and families fell proudly silent in a kind of disownment, and only the inanimate, unleashed and braying in its triumph, gave tongue. It's this, I thought, as the bus came to the end of the line, the driver said nothing, that, that, and we all disembarked, that makes the countryman say he cannot bear the noise of the city. What he finds unbearable is the non-noise of the human. I turned westward with some of the others toward the Hudson. How sunshine muddies the thinking, I thought. The absurdity is mine. The city me merely makes demonstrable in broad daylight and in numbers the final distance between psyche and psyche, between C sharp and D flat, between one and one. A distance to be yearned over occasionally in private, but sensibly welcomed as the naked bum blesses its trousers when abroad. The city is nothing more than anonym on the avenue, in place of anonym at home, in double bed or at family table, at his analytical desk or on his painfully self-examining knees. This is the feverish sensibility of the truant, still tied to his memoir. This man is writing a memoir, I thought. Now it's time to go home. Nevertheless, I continued walking. Outside, I walked down river. The western sky was peach blow. Under its drag of light, over the seal-colored palisades, one could almost believe in a chariot descending the other side. Above us, the welkin was forming, a blue that steadily accreted toward the dome toward that mythological center which never leaves our hearts, born as we are of a race of whom each must believe against all acquired knowledge that wherever he stands is under the apex of the sky. Once more, it was the hour of other people's assassinations. One grows to know sometimes very late that the private phenomenon one had nurtured so secretly in the breast 
is common to all. This hour that had grown along with me up, up from my childhood that I had brought along with me from Toscana had long since come to seem to me especially identified with a multifarious city. The hour when the lights went up willy-nilly in every breast and the unlucky held their breath at the sight of the lucky ones streaming by car, on foot, by wire, toward their love or even toward their hate, their ambition, their piety. The streets were mediumly soiled here with living, with a living neither high nor low that lacked the black drama of impoverishment and people moved on them, still in the convention of silence, but under the powdery air of evening, one could find a rhythm, as if they came forward in coda, subscribing toward a silent tune. They came forward singly, in pairs, and single again, as I was, the vicious, the sweet, the broken, and the indomitable, all intermixed as who knew better than I but my back was to the light, and their faces touched to unison by the sunset complete. The ordinary were advancing. This was the ordinary thing. They bloomed quietly toward me and passed me, face linked to domestic face in that temporary gilding, pitting its slight shadow against the interplanetary sky, shadow to shadow, speciously joined. I walked hopelessly faster to annul them, like a man pacing his hitherto perfectly controlled garden, and caught there by a sudden hallucination in which bushes burn voices, corallas clap their tongues, and the power of the inanimate pollinates the air. Shadow pressed to classless shadow, they surrounded me and passed me, and I hurried through them as if I were in danger of being snatched into the orbit of the wheel they turned on, drawn forward into the blur of the willow plate. Then the street lamps glanced on, spreading a garish light even more reasonable than day, and I escaped. Now I'd like to read you something I wrote last year uh, just a, a paragraph or two. Um, over the years, in your own city, in your own life, uh, the things you write and the things you think refine and pass again. This came about um, very in a very ordinary way. A magazine had an, sent me a questionnaire um, asking about were offensive to me, and uh, so I wrote back, and uh, they printed it. And here are the last, last page. Nowadays, I see New York as a steel engraving embodying the falling moral stance of a nation. Its skyscrapers crowd ever closer and higher a naked temptation in this era of the bomb. At their windowed bottoms, which are crammed with every provender, the homeless lie 
more blatantly than in the days when they were confined to the Bowery, an increasing number. They're a different crowd from those seasoned alcoholics. They're young schizoid dreamers, middle-aged striders with tatterdemalion hair. Yes, mad, some of them. But more lately, poppy-cheeked girls whose only abnormality is to be where they are. And middle-aged women garbed in a parody of neatness who in a calmer age might have been mother's poor cousin who suffered from the menopause. One fine-featured kid makes his home in front of the fence that hides the lot where an addition is to be built on Carnegie Hall. Such people ululate all along a street that also houses the pick of the world's non-museum art. And one may meet their like now in any city of the continent. In their coarse cries and sporadic singing and silence, I seem to hear a whole nation wallowing in luxe, ceding its farms to the banks and buying its government on the cheap. Today, two-furred women are going into bendels, followed by a lithe mop hair, a model maybe, crazily bare in boxer shorts. I am strolling toward a show of Anselm Kiefer, also to a mixed bag of wonders at Sidney Janis Gallery and to some German expressionists at the Gallery Saint-Étienne, this last organized with the help of Lufthansa. A biased afternoon, art-wise, but tomorrow I might be in Pop Town or at some show of some aging incendiary who still paints erotica on eggs. On the way home, I'll stop somewhere along my own barrio, Ninth Avenue, to cleanse my eye, steady my heart, and buy a vegetable. For an answer to your final question, one can write anywhere. The provinces squeeze you in, the city strings you out. But no, New York has not lost its high pop leadership. It's too great a show. Those towers, are they defying the heavens or the terrorists, or merely inviting a good conservative baptism by war? These people, great and small, this pasture land of the intellect, with all the world streaming in, or some fiercely tended mind walking quietly. This is my culture. I fear for it, as in a tragedy one fears for the heroically flawed. May it recover, may it go on. Reader Jerome Charon is a pen board member, and he's written 19 novels and a book of nonfiction, *Metropolis*. He's a Guggenheim Fellow, and he's received awards from the National Institute and Academy of the Arts and Letters, and the National Endowment for the Arts. His latest novel, out just 
right now is Paradise Man, and it too has a New York City setting. However, he is going to read from his nonfiction work about the city, Metropolis. Mr. Charon. Uh, when I started to write this book, Metropolis, I didn't realize the kind of effort that it was going to take. I had to read the New York Times for about three years cut out every clipping until I couldn't even live in my own apartment and read every book that had been written about New York City and then finally write the book. And then after I wrote it, um, I felt rather foolish because I stumbled upon an article that was so insane that it sort of belied everything I had written about New York City. It's both tragic and funny and sad and I mean, it's a complete, it's a complete madness. And it, uh, it was, it appeared in November 1986 in the New York Times, and the title is Russian Emigre Indicted in Fire Set in Building. I couldn't have done this myself. It's far more fictional than I could have ever dreamed of. A concert violinist was indicted yesterday after law enforcement authorities said they had linked him to a bungling band of arsonists who burned themselves more severely than the apartment building they had been paid to destroy. The violinist Gregory Gelman owned the building at 204 8th Avenue near 20th Street. He was charged with first degree arson, conspiracy, reckless endangerment, and insurance fraud and faces a maximum penalty of life in prison if convicted. Mr. Gelman is a 38-year-old Soviet emigre who graduated from the Juilliard School in 1980 and who had toured widely in the United States and Canada with private classical ensembles. Robert M. Morgenthau, the Manhattan District Attorney, said Mr. Gelman had conspired with two men to burn down Mr. Gelman's apartment building last winter to clear it of troublesome tenants and to collect on a $200,050 insurance policy. However, Mr. Morgenthau said the arson from its inception did not go according to plan. First of all, the four men charged with actually setting the blaze, three of whom had already pleaded guilty, arrived at the building without enough gasoline and had to drive back to Brooklyn for more. <laughs> then the bolt cutter that they had brought to cut the building's gas main proved inadequate for the job. Finally, two of the men were severely injured when the fire, which resulted in an explosion, was finally set. It was through hospital reports of the injuries mandated by state law in serious burn cases that investigators were led back to Mr. Gelman. According to fire department officials, more than 40 gallons of gasoline were poured into the building's basement and onto the roof early in the morning of February 24th. The officials said that although the building's main floor was extensively damaged by the two alarm blaze, the seven families in the building escaped injury and still live in the building. Mr. Gelman, who came to the United States in 1978 and who is currently an instructor at the Greenwich House, a performing arts center in Manhattan, was described musically by Bernard Holland 
of the New York Times in a review of a Carnegie Hall recital in 1982 as having an accident-prone technique. that made a hash of the Beethoven C minor sonata and the Ravel sonata for violin and piano. Mr. Gelman also has a problem with his own landlord, according to Harold Wilson, chief of the special housing unit of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Mr. Wilson said that when investigators arrived at Mr. Gelman's address in the inward section of Manhattan early yesterday morning to arrest him, they found an eviction notice on his door for failure to pay rent. That's the new American way. Now, I just want to read a, uh, two or three pages from uh, Metropolis to give you a sense of what the book is like uh, to talk about this mar mad, you know, wonderful and remarkable city. The bones of a city are often inscribed on a people's back, particularly in an immigrant town like New York, where whole populations arrived in phantom boats, passed through a brick church while their clothes were chalked and their scalps inspected for lice. And if the country let them in, they toiled to earn their keep, made children money, and died in the crush to become American. Both the sadness and the vitality of New York come from the same engine, the greenhorn's desire to transform himself into some magical thing, man of the new world. But the new world was as much of a phantom as the old one, because no city could match that vision the greenhorns had of a land where they wouldn't be lonely, where the czar would love them like his very own child. No czar, American or Russian, ever loved a greenhorn. And it's the frightening distance between the Greenhorn's invented idea of America and what he finally met that provided the fabric of New York. But it's a fabric with a strange and brutal skin. Because New York is the city that reproduces itself according to the ideals of each generation. It has no continuous line. Everything is possible because its past is only the future turned upside down. New York's history is what happened tomorrow. The Dutch planned it that way. They built a replica of Amsterdam at the foot of Manhattan, a phantom city with windmills and all. And the practical Dutch pretended they were still at home. They weren't colonists. They didn't want a new world. They closed their eyes and had their fabricated motherland. It's no wonder the English took New Amsterdam without a shot. The Dutch were crazy. They thought these gutters and gardens were in some old town. Why should they fight the British for a territory that was as familiar as their own finger? They were Dutch, this had to be Amsterdam, and the English could go to hell. The British has succumbed to that vision. New York remained New Amsterdam. The English presence in New York was so illusory because it never took hold. That's why I'd, I'd suffered amnesia about the British. They were ruled by Peter Stuyvesant's ghost. And after the Redcoats were gone, we still had a Dutch colony, even with the Declaration of Independence. New York was practical and insane. It continued to trade like the Dutch, 
and build on that phantom city. It decided to grow along a grid, ignoring bumps, ditches, and heights, and the particular bend of its rivers. It would be a phantom grid of 2,028 blocks where anything that was built upon them could be removed at will. So we have the Empire State Building dug into the old cradle of the Waldorf Astoria, and the Waldorf is shoved onto another grid. We have a Madison Square Garden on Madison Square, and then the garden starts to float like a gondola on the grid. It reappears uptown, caters to circuses and rodeos, the ranges and the necks, becomes a parking lot, and the garden is born again over the new Penn Station. It's an ugly glass tank, but who cares? Nothing is sacred except the grid. And the grid doesn't allow for memory and remorse. It's part of a phantom town built onto a Dutch vision of Amsterdam in America, which happens to be called New York. And so we have a city of perpetual greenhorns. First the Dutch, then those temporary Englishmen, then the Irish, the Germans, the Italians, the Jews, then another wave, Jamaicans, Puerto Ricans, the Anto-Castro-Cuban middle class, Dominicans, Russian refuseniks, the black Cubans out of Mario Harbor, Vietnamese boat people, Koreans, ethnic Chinese from everywhere on the planet, and this country's internal immigrants, our pilgrim slaves, the blacks, who are much older than the revolution and have a deeper pedigree in America than most of our granddads. Narrowed down, New York is nothing but Dutch fathers, the grid, and all the unremembered dead. Sometimes the dead rise up in peculiar ways, and the records they've kept of their lives, their own night songs, begin to haunt us because those songs are often dreams of the city itself. Herman, Herman Melville, our greatest fiction writer, had to die twice. Once when he stopped publishing stories and novels and became an obscure inspector of the docks, and then when he gave up his own personal ghost in 1891. But Melville was really a 20th century writer. It took a time of explosive immigration to rediscover Melville, that man of Dutch and English descent. The 19th century, with its absolute faith in the entrepreneur, wouldn't listen to Melville's dark narrative webs. Bartleby the Scrivener haunts our city as no other character in American fiction has ever done. He's like a wicked Dutch ancestor saying no to America's fantastic growth. He's the underside of New York's mercurial energy, city dweller turned into a cocoon. Thank you. Jelani Davis, who will read next, is a staff writer at the Village Voice. And she is, um, speaking of distinction, a librettist. She wrote the libretto for the opera about Malcolm X, which appeared uh, at the city, uh, city Opera last fall. But she has also published a book called Playing the Changes with Wesleyan Press. And that's what she's going to read uh, from now. Ms. Davis. It's a lot easier for me if I stand up. So yeah, you 
Um, my novel's about Virginia, so I'm not going to read it. Okay. They always play it different in New York City. Fast city, nothing clean about the place. No such thing as one hand clapping or like the purity of one horn and the hall. You can hear it talking like hard times and bent slugs. Fast city in your music. Hear it cry fast, moanful cries. Violins step in, I hear you, fast city. Music of the way back, way out ahead of the knife-fendered traffic of the low-ceiling five-flights fi blues, impeeling browns and rust-edged dangers. I hear you, fast city, bursting all through the pure with the long-gone gangster tones. Blast me back through the skag and jump of it, the rob and steal of it, to the stomp joy and sweet completion of it. In remembrance of the brightness, the sound of one sound slapping, snapping, and grabbing the round of it, the last loss found, the hollow of it, no nea, long knowing, I say it says, I hear you, fast city. Long gone, bit black, kick, rumble, kicks and rumbles back again. Loose hairs of discontent fall like lint upon the player's coats. One eats oranges and shoots the seeds down the slide. One leans, big boy, falls against his chest. He lets his feet fly and march. One says he has true dreads, plays stripper funk in the spaces. Sweet intensity, I hear you, fast city, plugging on the deaf insistence of blind horsemen, stomping Dumas's clouds out from under, in sky stomping the music, splattered with spit and sweat, the gone one's blood. That's on five compositions by Roscoe Mitchell. I used to go to hear loft jazz when loft jazz existed. And that's uh, five compositions of Roscoe Mitchell. This poem's about the Rock Lounge. I, I'm not sure it's still there. I went to see a band called Bad Brains. Um, the idea that they think must scare people to death. <clears throat> the only person I ever met from Southeast DC was a genius who stabbed her boyfriend for sneaking up on her in the kitchen. She was tone deaf and had no ear for French. She once burned her partner in bid whist for making a mistake, but she would wait on a corner at night for a guy with a suit and briefcase who didn't want to be seen with her in the day. He wanted to buy me a Bentley because he didn't want to be black. I wanted her to get him in the kitchen, prove she wasn't so deaf she couldn't hear the dirt flying. But she was smarter than me and graduated early and left town. My friend, the child prodigy, always looked to me like Billie Holiday. The genius from Southeast DC told me she was a junkie with the wrong class of friends. So was Billie Holiday, she would point out. And so were the kids at the Rock Lounge. They'd never heard of Anacostia or cared why the singer was missing some teeth. I wondered why they played reggae when their rock and roll made the punks so crazy. Wondered why they didn't just get them in the kitchen while they had them slam dancing each other to the floor. The punks jumped on the stage and dove into their friends, let their chains beat their thighs and arms. The crowd thought death in two minute intervals, heavy metal duos and creaming murder. 
The band of 12-year-old rockers wish they could do it, come like that on the refuse of somebody else's youth. I had a New York City incident a few years ago. Um, the first time I wrote about it, um, it came out like this. The attack could not be seen by night. This little phase keeps on the same way, without variety. Jazz and compromise making blue snow grow at the windows. Mohair fumes clog my throat like cats. Flames pounce without burning. Shadows gather in parkers at my back. Turn so I can see your face. Stand where I can see you, man. Should someone phone, I will tell whoever it is. I cannot escape this night. Even saxophones do not dry the light brown sweat terror in white doorways. The under multicolored covers, there is no way to sleep with the phone falling off the hook. The blaring beep of warnings, do not leave your house. Do not stay home. This is the contradiction of when I live. Even fanfares and flourishes do not announce a truce with our personal assailants. Without variety, blue dust, blood traces in floor wax, black fog and nappy lint, colorless wax spreads broad across all the windows. Some permanent weather happened to this building. Some misplaced coal mine had its disaster here, and I am alive inside. A couple of months later, um, I wrote this. Now you'll find out what happened. In the fire lane. We are deadly, decadent anarchists living in the fire lane. You know that. We do not secure the lives we mean to lead. Because we are narcissists, I use us. Because loss is personal, we don't even watch or listen for the news. We are moving fast. We like the pleasures. The facts suggest knowing, abandonment. We are deadly in our way. The way we forget, fall asleep, fall out, leave the door open. The men with unhealed wounds jump us, try to maim us without even taking the bread, without even, as Wesley says, anything motivational. This happened to me and someone known to me on the same night. Have we been listening? Did we hear the scream in the hall or Intazaki say every three minutes? Did I know the woman who met the mugger on the same night was shot for saying no like I did? He took my hand, I'm sorry, he took my head in his hands and bashed it to the wall. Yes, that's right, bitch. Smacked off my glasses. His brass ring cut its way through my mouth to the gum, moved my teeth. I'm gonna kill you. I thought I was a doll with a porcelain face shattering off. I screamed. I die my way, a kick to the groin. I screamed six flights. Too late, but they came. He ran, cause they came yelling in t-shirts and drawers, canes and switchblades. The woman across the hall, barefoot with kitchen knife and a new lover behind her. But some of us just wait for the song to be gone, feeling taken by force. We are decadent, yes, because we know have sat through the terror outside a window. 
We cannot do this fast enough. No time to write the poem, just time to say we have got to be safe. We cannot afford the oblivion we talk so much about. to um, interview uh, Papa Joe Jones. He was in New York Hospital, and um, I call this his poem. Almost all of it is verbatim from him. Um, you only need to know that I went to New York Hospital to see him, and we were looking out at a bridge, um, and he died about a month later, so I was really glad that I had just put it in his words. Also, I should say, I wanted to ask him about Billie Holiday because I collect Billie Holiday stories, but um, I never got to ask him, but he knew. Okay. Everybody knows that the elder was watching, seen us coming from way far. You could hear his music over six decades if you lived that long, but you didn't. Not then, he would say. You wanted him to say, but he wouldn't. He knew what you wanted. I watched the reflection, he said, of the bridge, in the painting of the bridge, when the sun sets, his back turned to the bridge even now. I haven't heard no music since Kansas City, and I fear no one, because I fear God. But I have heard him cook. And I am crazy, thank God for that. I am no one. I am 50 people I once knew. He could see us from way far. He only spoke looking through your hair, past your brain to your safe zone, where you can be trusted. Had no need to talk to you of time you did not live. I could indulge you, but you can hear me playing behind Lady Day. I know nothing about slavery. I was born free and heard the blues. When they asked me, was the count colored, all I could say was very. You see, I played music with folks who could stand up with nothing but the rhythm. This last poem's called Potholes. Love for you decays like New York streets falls short like heat inspectors and water supplies. The longer I stay here, the less I even like you. My ceiling gives out a little each night and I think of you. Little crashes like birds with bad wings wake me up <coughs> to a certain bitter desire for radio, credit, or a car. I could get out of New York with the proper attitude. You're not that cute. And crying may be good for the complexion, but so is oatmeal. <laughs> I'm not that good at it. Your love is crooked, running all in my way, leaning, falling, looking for a place to lay. New York is a hard rock for that sort of thing. People will just turn and walk away saying, I really don't need this. I was going uptown. Thank you. <laughs>
Allen Ginsberg, who will read next, is a, a poet, of course, and a vice president of Penn. And his poem, Howl, made its way through censorship to become one of the most widely read poems of the century. He has managed to be in hot water simultaneously all over. That is, he was crowned Frog May King in 1965, then expelled by the Czech police, and simultaneously placed on the most wanted list of dangerous people by the FBI. <laughs> Nevertheless, he has managed to travel and teach in uh, the People's Republic of China, the Soviet Union, Scandinavia. He received Yugoslavia's Struga Poetry Festival Golden Reef in 1986. He is a member of the American Institute of Arts and Letters and co-founder of the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poet Poetics at the Naropa Institute, the first accredited Buddhist college in the Western world. He is now a distinguished professor at Brooklyn College. Did I say he was vice president of Penn? I did, and he is going to read from his um, a recent book of poetry, White Shroud, Poems, 1980-1985. Mr. Ginsburg. Could I have the warm water from over there? Sure. The warm water. Sure. Uh, I should also would like to make one other announcement. Uh, since these readings are very short, <coughs> I'll be reading uh, this Wednesday with Robert Creeley to open the 20th anniversary celebration of St. Mark's Poetry Project over on 2nd Avenue and 10th Street. And uh, also we'll be reading a full reading tomorrow at 1215 at the Student Union Building at Brooklyn College. So I have two poems. Uh, one of 17 syllable, one line, uh, that doesn't have a title, but we'll call it S. Klein, for a phantom department store. <laughs> and the other of uh, something like 140 line. Caught, shoplifting, ran out of the department store at sunrise and woke up. <laughs> White. Shroud. I am summoned from my bed to the great city of the dead where I have no house or home, but in dreams may sometime roam looking for my ancient room, a feeling in my heart of doom where grandmother aged lies in her couch of later days, and my mother, saner than I, laughs and cries. She's still alive. I found myself again in the great eastern metropolis wandering under elevated transports, iron struts. Many windowed apartments walled the crowded Bronx roadway under old theater roofs. Masses of poor women shopping in black shawls past candied store newsstands. Children skipped beside grandfathers bent, tottering on their canes. I descended to this same street from blackened subway Sundays long ago, tea and locks with my aunt and dentist cousin when I was 10. 
The living pacifist, David Dellinger, walked at my right side. He'd driven from Vermont to visit Catholic worker Tivoli Farm. We rode up North Manhattan in his car, relieved the U.S. wars were over in the newspaper. Television's frenzied dance of dots and shadows calmed. Now, older than our shouts and banners, we explored brick avenues we lived in to find new residences, rent loft offices or roomy apartments, retire our eyes and ears and thoughts. Surprised, I passed the open chamber where my Russian Jewish grandmother lay in her bed and sighed, eating a little chicken soup or borscht, potato latkes, crumbs on her blankets, talking Yiddish, complaining, solitude abandoned an old folks' house. I realized I could find a place to sleep in the neighborhood. What relief, the family, together again, first time in decades. Now, vigorous, middle-aged, I climbed hillside streets in West Bronx, looking for my own hot water furnished flat to settle in, close to visit my grandmother, read Sunday newspapers in vast, glassy cafeterias, smoke over pencils and paper, poetry desk, happy with books fathered left in the attic, peaceful encyclopedia and a radio in the kitchen. An old black janitor swept the gutter, Street dogs sniffed red hydrants. Nurses pushed baby carriages past silent house fronts. Anxious, I besettled with money in my own place before nightfall. I wandered tenement embankments overlooking the pillared subway trestles by the bridge crossing Bronx River. How like Paris or Budapest suburbs, far from centrum left bank junkie doorstep tragedy, intellectual fights in restaurant bars, where a spry old lady carried her century universal view camera to record Works Progress Administration newspaper metropolis double-decker buses in September sun near the Broadway L. Skyscraper roofs upreared 10,000 office windows shining, electric lit above tiny taxi street lamps in Midtown Avenue's late avenue darkness the day before Christmas. In Midtown Avenue's late afternoon darkness the day before Christmas. Herald Square crowds thronged past traffic lights July noon to lunch, shop under Macy's department store awnings for dry goods, Pause with satchels at Frankfurter counters, wearing stylish straw hats of the decade. Mankind thriving in their solitudes, in shoes. But I'd strayed too long amused in the picture cavalcade. Where was I living? I remembered looking for a house and eating in apartment kitchens, bookshelf decades ago. Aunt Rose's illness, an appendix operation, teeth braces, one afternoon, fitting eyeglasses, first time, combing wet hair back on my skull, young, young, awkward looking in the high school mirror photograph. The dead look for a home, but here I was, still alive. I walked 
past a niche between buildings with tin canopy shelter from cold rain warmed by hot exhaust from subway gratings, beneath which engines throbbed with pleasant, quiet drone. A shopping bag lady lived in a side alley on a mattress, her wooden bed above the pavement, many blankets and sheets, pots, pans, and plates beside her, fan, electric stove by the wall. She looked desolate, white-haired, but strong enough to cook and stare. Passers-by ignored her building-side hovel many years. A few businessmen stopped to speak or give her bread or yogurt. Sometimes she disappeared into state mental hospital back wards, but now returned to her homely alleyway, sharp-eyed, old, cranky hair, half-paralyzed, complaining, angry as I passed. I was horrified a little. Who'd take care of such a woman, familiar, half-neglected on her street except she'd weathered many snows, stubborn alone in her moth-eaten rabbit fur hat? She had tooth troubles, teeth too old, ground down like horse molars. She opened her mouth to display her gorge. How can she live with that? How eat, I thought. Mushroom-like gray-white horseshoe of incisors she chomped with, hard, flat flowers ranged round her gums. Then I recognized she was my mother, Naomi, habiting this old city-edged corner, older than I knew her before her life disappeared. What are you doing here? I asked. Amazed, she recognized me still, astounded to see her sitting up on her own, chin raised to greet me, mocking. I'm living alone. You all abandoned me. I'm a great woman. I came here by myself. I wanted to live. Now I'm too old to take care of myself. I don't care. What are you doing here? I was looking for a house, I thought. She has one in poor Bronx. Needs someone to help her shop and cook. Needs her children now. I'm her younger son. Walked past her alleyway by accident. But here she is, survived, sleeping at night, awake on that wooden platform. Has she an uh, extra room? I noticed her cave adjoined an apartment door, unpainted basement storeroom facing her shelter in the building side. I could live here, worst comes to worst, best place I'll find, near my mother in our mortal life. My years of haunting continental city streets, apartment dreams, old rooms I used to live in, still paid rent for, but key didn't work, locks changed. Immigrant families occupied my familiar hallway lodgings, or I'd wandered downhill homeless avenues, money lost, or come back to the flat, couldn't recognize my house in London, Paris, Bronx, by Columbia University Library, downtown 8th Avenue near the Chelsea subway. Those years unsettled were over now. Here I could live forever. Here, have a home at, with Naomi at long last, at long, long last. My search was ended in this pleasant way. Time to care for her before death. Long way to go yet. Lots of trouble, her cantankerous habits. Shameful blankets near the street. Tooth pots, dirty pans, half paralyzed, irritable. She needed my middle-aged strength and worldly money knowledge. Housekeeping, art, 
I can cook and write books for a living. She'll not have to beg her medicine food. A new set of teeth for company. Won't yell at the world. I can afford a telephone. After 25 years, we could call up Aunt Edie in California. I'll have a place to stay. Best of all, I told Naomi. Now, don't get mad. You realize your old enemy grandma's still alive. She lives a couple blocks downhill. I just saw her, like you. My breast rejoiced. All my troubles over. She was content, too old to care or yell her grudge, only complaining her bad teeth. What long-sought peace. Then, glad of life, I woke in Boulder before dawn, my second-story bedroom windows bluff street facing east over town rooftops. I returned from the land of the dead to living poesy and wrote this tale of long-lost joy to have seen my mother again. And when the ink ran out of my pen and rosy violet illumined city treetop skies above the flat iron front range, I went downstairs to the shady living room where Peter Orlovsky sat with long hair lit by television glow to watch the sunrise weather news. I kissed him and filled my pen and wept. Ms. Tama Janowitz, who will read next, has a her first novel, uh, American Dad, and her first collection of short stories, Slaves of New York, in paperback as of next month. Her second novel, A Cannibal in Manhattan, will appear next fall. She is currently the Alfred Hodder Fellow in Humanities at Princeton and has won uh, two National Endowment Awards. Her short stories keep popping up in the New Yorker, Paris Review, Harper's, Bomb, Mississippi Review, and then she wrote, etc., etc. So you can look for her everywhere. But she's now going to read a short fairy tale about New York City called The Great White Wedding Cake. Miss Janowitz. The Great White Wedding Cake. So once upon a time, there was a very young, talented film director and a very sincere and petulant actress who were living together in a penthouse on 57th Street. More than anything, they wanted to have a baby together. And for a long time, this seemed as if it would be impossible. But finally, after three weeks, they got pregnant and decided to have a fabulous combination wedding christening party when the baby was born. Now, the artistic film director and the actress already had every material possession it was possible to own. So on the invitations, they suggested the guests, who were to be the godparents, bring presents for the baby. And they asked everyone in the business to come. The one person they forgot to invite, however, was an ex-boyfriend of the film directors, a poet, 
because the film director had put those days behind him. The ex-boyfriend lived in the penthouse above theirs. It was one of those new apartment buildings where every apartment was a penthouse, <laughs> with one, me one bedroom starting at $375,000. Normally, a poet would not be able to afford such a place, but this poet had won the Genius Award and also knocked off a movie script in his youth on which his agent had gotten him excellent points and which was a surprise smash hit. After the wedding christening, everyone went back to the penthouse, where there was a lot of food, such as gravlocks, fresh figs, Iranian caviar, and Cuban cigars of the finest quality. All the godparents stood around making a fuss over the new baby. She was named Princess, because she was, in fact, a real princess or would have been had the Russian Revolution never taken place and her father, the film director, not been one-eighth Chippewa Indian and one-sixteenth Jewish. Just as everyone was sitting down to eat, the poet from upstairs appeared carrying a fabulous cake. It was a giant cake topped with icing that looked as if it was made out of sugar but was actually a combination of whipped tofu <laughs> and decorated with all kinds of incredible activity. When the movie actress saw the famous poet film director's ex-boyfriend at the door carrying the cake, she ran up to him and said nervously, Oh, I'm so glad you could make it. We thought you were in Europe. And this cake, how fabulous. It's macrobiotic, the poet said sourly. In the meantime, all the godparents began to give their gifts to Princess. One wished her the good fortune to appear on the cover of People magazine. Another that she would go to Episcopal, Brearley, and then Harvard. The third that she might write a best-selling novel. The fourth that she would never need root canal or dental surgery of any kind and the last that she might win the Academy Award and her acceptance speech be mercifully short. The ex-boyfriend's turn came next, and he stood up and said, Princess should have her hand pierced with a spindle and die of the wound. This terrible gift made the whole company tremble and wonder what the hell he was talking about. At this very instant, a young tennis pro came out from behind the antique Japanese screen. It had once belonged to a Zen monastery and dated from the 13th century, and spoke these words aloud. Don't worry about it, the guy is off his rocker. Maybe I can't undo what's been done, but I will say this. Princess might get into trouble, but in the long run, I think it will turn out she has fabulous talent for public relations and marketing. Maybe she'll run an art gallery. About 14 or 15 years later, one winter afternoon, Princess, who had been raised by a Spanish maid named Dulcinea, <laughs> was riding her bicycle in Central Park when she stopped for a few minutes to rest on a rock next to a group of gaily decorated youths. <laughs> what are you doing here, said Princess. We smoking a magic potion, pretty child, said one of the youths. 
Might I try some, Princess said. My father is a famous film director, and my mother an award-winning actress. <laughs> Say what, said one of the youths. <laughs> they were the first people Princess had ever met who did not seem impressed by her background. And while Princess had often been warned and also forewarned about the dangers of a spindle, she had no idea what was going on, and she smoked some of the magic elixir with the youths. Immediately thereupon became addicted and went out into the streets and sold her body to obtain more of the stuff. So everybody turned up to try to help. They sent her to the best psychiatrists, to a tough love center, and to horseback riding camp. <laughs> By now, sadly, the film director was on location in Tunisia, filming a major horror film called Septicemia. <laughs> and the actress was remarried to a cowboy musician and living in Aspen with four stepchildren, two more of her own, and three adopted Laotian refugees. Aww. Neither parent wanted anything to do with her but they agreed to let Princess stay in the high tower of the penthouse because they both felt so guilty that they had no time for her. Pretty soon, the place was a disaster. Princess sold everything in it to buy more drugs, including the 13th century Japanese screen, the American art pottery collection, and the exercise equipment. <laughs> Sometimes, to make some fast cash, she and her friends would take a piece of Wonder Bread and scrunch it up and put it into a vial and make 20 bucks off an unsuspecting buyer. <laughs> and so in this fashion, she was able to survive. Still, her teeth remained strong and white, despite the fact that she never went to the dentist. And this story might have turned out unhappily had not one day the tennis pro, by now he was too old to play tennis and was instead teaching semiotics at Princeton, stopped by for a visit and insisted on getting Princess signed up for an art history class over at the new school. <laughs> to her surprise, Princess found she was interested in art history, in particular from 1963 on. <laughs> and she convinced her father she had gone straight and got him to invest some money in a gallery space in the East Village. It was quite obvious she had a real talent for this, for after six months, she had discovered four new young artists, and their paintings began to sell for upwards of $15,000, even though most of the sales were to friends of her parents who were anxious to help out. Pretty soon, on a trip to an art fair in Basel, Switzerland, Princess met a young Italian painter named Domenico, who came from Naples, where his family still lived in a decrepit palazzo. And they fell in love, and he moved to New York to be with her, and she forgot about drugs entirely. They always spent the month of August in Martha's Vineyard, and from time to time, they would bump into her father's old boyfriend on the beach. He had given up being a poet, and had opened a catering service where the world's most fabulous cakes were Federal Express around the world.
Our last New York author of the afternoon is Richard Price, who has published two novels, ladies, oh, three novels, Ladies, Man, Blood Brothers, and The Wanderers, and a new one, The Breaks, which makes four. And he's also written the screenplay for The Color of Money. Today, he will be reading from Year of the Ribbons, an article about New York's reaction to the return of the Iran hostages that was published in Rolling Stones. Mr. Price. Uh, my new novel, The Breaks, was published in 1983, but it's technically my new, well, newest novel. Um, I, I thought we were supposed to give talks about New York and what it means, but so I had this whole talk figured out. And I just have, um, the, my, my, I, I like anti-New York stuff. I, mean, cause I feel like New York is, I don't love it. It's just like, you know, it's like the back of your neck or your throat. Like, you don't love it. It's just, you know, part of you that you're attached to, and you, if you don't have it, you know, you're in trouble. So... Um, <laughs> But I mean, you know, if I lived in Kansas, I'd probably love flatlands and farmers, and in Wyoming would be cowboys and mountains. But I live in New York, so it's like vertical, you know, grids and uh, you know, lots of different types of people. That you know, that's what I was born into. So, like that. Um, my my favorite two anti-New York things. One, it's uh, there's a, there's a writer named P.J. O'Rourke who's a sort of comic writer, and he says he's from like this place called like New. New Indiana, Illinois, or New Illinois, Indiana. It's like one of these like little towns. And the greatest summation of like America's take on the New York City is his uncle who says, Kikes, kooks, and queers. Never been there, never want to. Uh, the other, the other uh, thing that happened, I just got back from, from London, and I spent the whole time, I'm doing a movie about nightclubs, and I spent the whole time in the East End in Brixton, which is like going to New York and spend, spending, for the first time, and spending all your time in the Bronx, you know. Um, but it, I had a good time, but a friend of mine had also done something like this and got held up, mugged in Stepford or Deptford or, you know, Shrimpshire or somewhere, but, you know, one of these, like, sort of <laughs> council flat boroughs, you know. And he said the guy had him up against the wall and had a, uh, an object. He still doesn't know what it was, pressed against his back and took his wallet out. And he said to this guy that was mugging him, uh, give me a break, man. I, you know, it's my first trip to England. You know, and the guy, cause the guy is mugging him says, where are you from? He says, New York. He says, is New York as dangerous as they say? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyways, so I, I wanted to read from uh, I just finished a screenplay that um, it, it's about midlife crisis for a homicide detective it's like midlife crisis for drunk guys with guns you know um, and it takes place on the Upper West Side and uh, I just wanted to read the opening scene um, and it, it's weird when you read from screenplays because like, I've been writing, I don't even feel like a real writer anymore. So all I write is like these w m telegrams of prose followed by dialogue, you know, instructions about where to put people and then, what they, and then you write what they say. So my ear is getting like Superman, but, you know, my prose is 
probably like I'm walking like you know like, I, I'm terrified of writing another book because I'm probably gonna put all these like abbreviations in instead of real words but um, I, I'll, I'll try to like read it like it's like real writing but okay okay this is uh, the exterior it's, it's um, a shabby catering hall in the Grand Concourse um, Two men wearing dark blue warm-up jackets, the New York Yankees logo prominent on the chest, stand with clipboards in front of the street entrance. Behind them is a large sign leaning on an easel. Eighth annual Meet the Yankees brunch, invitation only. A few guys stand in a loose line waiting for admission. At the doorway, a young invitee waits as one of the clipboard guys checks the guest list against his invitation. Clipboard guy. Mazza, Mazza, Louis Mazza. You got some ID, Louie, a driver's license? Mazza digs into his wallet, hands over his license. Clipboard guy. This says Frank Garrow. Mazza, wait a minute. He takes it back, passes the guy another license with the right name. <laughs> the two clipboard guys stare at each other for a brief second, amused. Mazza, there you go, Louis Mazza. The game after we get in box seats, right? Interior, the catering hall. A big Yankee banner is strung across the stage. Rows of long folding tables covered with Yankee pinstripe tablecloths, name cards, and place settings. Ray Charles sings his soulful version of America over the PA. The room is half full with guests, 25 men, mainly young, white, black, Hispanic. A dozen guys in Yankee warm-up jackets usher and escort guests to their assigned seats. Close on, Frank Keller, 43, short, quick, wiry, wearing a Yankee jacket. He moves from guest to guest, pouring them orange juice, a quart pitcher in each hand. He pours for the Maldonado twins. The Maldonados are in their late 20s, goatees, natalie dressed. Frank, how you guys doing? Omar Maldonado. Yo, brother, where the Yankees at? Frank, they're coming. You a Yankee? You don't recognize me? What, you a shortstop? The twins laugh and high-five each other. Frank, straight-faced, used to be. Frank, oh, Omar, Omar's brother Ephraim, what? Frank, doing a perfect imitation of Phil Rizzuto. Holy cow. Omar, jaw on the floor. You the scooter? Yo, Ephraim, this dude, Phil Rizzuto. Do that again. Frank, wink, winking at some fellow workers. Holy cow. The twins stand and shake Frank's hand. Ephraim, yo, Phil, how come you pouring us juice? Exterior, doorway. A dozen more guys waiting to be admitted. Clipboard guys. Invites and IDs, fellas. Invites and IDs. Guy. How we get into the game after? Ain't got no car. Clipboard guy, we got you covered. Close on, a slow pan of French toast, pancakes, and place name cards, Reams, Ortez, Torrio, Jackson, as the guests scoff down their brunch. Frank heads to the stage. The guests applaud, shouts of scooter and holy cow. Laughter, Frank holds up his hands for silence. Suddenly, 20 guys with Yankee jackets file in around the walls of the room, surrounding the guests. Frank, fellas, fellas, I got some good news, I got some bad news. Which you want first? Chorus of bad news overrides good news. Frank, bad news wins. Here we go. The Yanks can't make it here today, guys. Groans. And you can't make it over to the stadium later. Silence, except for one loud, uh-oh. Frank, we got 35 outstanding warrants here eating our pancakes. And on behalf of the New York Yankees and the New York City Career Criminals Investigations Unit, you're all under arrest. Utter silence as Frank and all the Yankee jackets pull out their detective shields. The rear wall rolls back on casters, revealing a whole booking setup, photographer, fingerprint station clerks, even an arraignments judge. It's a major sting operation. Frank, good-natured, sorry, guys, we got gotcha. you. 
The guests slouch and groan in resignation. Voice, fuck you, Scooter. Laughter, <laughs> laughter from both the cops and the cons. Voice, what's the good news? Frank, good news is coming around. L'chaim. Four cops holding half gallons of vodka make their way from guest to guest, converting all the orange juices to screwdrivers, one for the road. Exterior, entrance to the catering hall. Frank is lounging with two other detectives on the street. They're smoking. Day is done. Detective, fuck you, Scooter. They all laugh. A black guy, Ernest Lee, and his 10-year-old son come running towards Frankie and his pals. Ernest, winded. Am I too late? The kid pulls up, also winded, holding a baseball glove. Ernest hands his invitation to Frank. Frank, thrown by the presence of the kid. Who's this? Ernest, that's my son. Frank, invitations for you only. You Ernest Lee? Ernest, hey man, how am I going to meet Dave Winfield without taking my boy? Frankie whispers to one of the detectives who vanishes inside. Frank, you got some ID, Ernest? As Ernest digs out his wallet, the detective comes back out. Detective in Frankie's ear, Grand Theft Auto, two counts. Frankie sighs, thinks for a beat, ignoring Ernest's ID. Frank, we're booked up in there, Ernest. Ernest, hey, I got an invite here. Frankie casually pulls back his jacket so that his gold shield shows. Frank, looking away, I said we're booked up. Ernest's face turns gray. He involuntarily backs up. Backs up. Frank, we'll catch you later. <laughs> Ernest nods a barely perceptible thanks and br briskly walks away with his uncomprehending son. <clears throat> this is just a one-page thing. This, I, I really feel like as I'm writing screenplays, it's hard for me to read for any kind of fiction or prose because I haven't done any journalism or anything um, in a long time. But this is like a real, like a New York thing. This is 1981. Rolling Stone did a last... Uh, they were asked a, a bunch of writers to do one incident of the year that, for them, summarized the year. And this is the year that the Iran hostages came marching home like we won, you know. Um, and it's just a one-pager, and it's the last thing I'm going to read. Um, well, I thought this whole thing would be finished by 6, and it's now 4 to 6. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, so, all right, this is called The Year of the Ribbons. Oh, God, you should have seen it. My wife came bursting into our apartment, her cheeks burning from the January wind. She was so wired that not only was she still gripping the handlebars of her bike, but she walked it through the foyer into the middle of the living room rug. I was riding up Fifth Avenue. I get up to Rockefeller Center, and all of a sudden, all the church bells, St. Patrick's, St. Thomas, start ring ringing. The hostages are home. Right in the middle of the afternoon, everybody just stops and starts cheering and hugging each other all up and down Fifth Avenue. I had to keep going. I was late, and I hadn't even been following the hostages. But between the hugging and the bells, I just started crying. I was just pumping and crying up Fifth Avenue. I couldn't help it. I flashed on that famous photo of the sailor grabbing and kissing some woman in Times Square on VJ Day, bending her backwards like a deep dip in a tango as people hop and yip with happiness in the background. And then I flashed on one image of American anger I had been seeing for months on T-shirts, buttons, posters, and bumpy stickers. Mickey Mouse is holding the American flag and giving the finger. Beneath his cartoon shoes is the legend Screw Iran. Mickey Mouse, we're in trouble. In a weird way, we're underdogs. The hostage release elation was a victory of underdogs. We haven't been underdogs since the War of 1812. 
Ten days later, I went to visit my 82-year-old grandmother in her nursing home in the East Bronx. As I got out of the subway and walked through the barrio, every store and half the people were decked out in yellow ribbons. Later that day, there was to be a hostage parade around Lower Manhattan. A lot of shrinks had warned of psychic damage caused by too much public hoopla instead of just letting the hostages ease back into their private lives. But Koch managed to get almost half of the 52 to do the show. The home, my grandmother's home was surrounded by guards and bars. The people inside were prisoners living in protective custody from the surrounding neighborhood like a low-key day-in, day-out version of the farmhouse in Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) Passing Checkpoint Charlie, I entered the lobby and freaked. Old age always terrifies me, and I was in the middle of a sea of octogenarians all milling back and forth like bored fish in a small tank. One nearly bald little woman inching away from here to there had a yellow ribbon tied to the front crossbar of her chrome walker. My grandmother's room was clean and spare. It looked like a freshman dorm room with a kitchenette, except for two differences. There were three strategically placed alarm buttons in case she fell or got helpless in some way. And instead of the home-issue bed, she brought the huge queen-size job she'd shared with my late grandfather in Brooklyn. She sat by her small dinette table, her hands in the lap of her floral dress, her eyes magnified to the size of robin's eggs behind her heavy glasses. I'm ashamed, she shrugged. All I got here is instant coffee. I can't even make you some cereal. I'm ashamed. I didn't even want you to come. We played dominoes and talked about how bad the neighborhood was until her boyfriend, a younger man of 78, came down from his room on the eighth floor. My grandmother's got a portable TV, and he wanted to watch the hostage parade. His face was set in a permanent wince of irritation, and as he waited for the TV to warm up, he started in on my grandmother to feed me, insisting I was starving. Herschel, all I got is instant coffee. I'm ashamed. I didn't even want him to come. He waved her away, making a noise like something was stuck in his throat. She waved him away and shrugged. Koch had the hostages lined up on the steps of City Hall as if for a class picture. Truman was the last good president, my grandmother said. Herschel shushed her down. The ceremony opened with the star-spangled banner. Herschel sang along about two stanzas behind, improvising some lyrics. And the rockets were right there. (laughs) Almost boisting in the air. My grandmother leaned forward to me and whispered, there'll never be another man for me like your grandfather. That night I was crazy for some action. I needed to be surrounded by muscles and tits, music, fast feet. Me and Judy went to the loudest, most raucous restaurant in Manhattan. It's an Italian place set up like a mess hall. It's got glaring overheads and a fat lady singer who specializes in Tom Jones, Cher, and dirty Italian folk songs. The waiters pinch girls' asses or sit on their laps. The clientele, mainly teen queens and Travolta heads, usually get totally piss-eyed on the unlabeled house wine, vintage 2 o'clock. The last time I was there... The last time I was there, I saw Harry Reams dancing with his date down the center lane to the foot-stomping accompaniment of the whole house. The time before that, Paul Sorvino got up from his dinner, took the mic, and sang a half hour of opera. It's a euphoric, deafening zoo, and almost everybody is young. The singer came on to a standing ovation. People sprayed food from their mouths as they cheered. She was so heavy, she walked port to starboard with gravity kicking in every once in a while for forward momentum. She opened with your cheating heart and bang, bang, my baby shot me down. 
Somehow, between her winks and hand gestures, it seemed like every lyric was secret code for the old in and out. In, out old, old in and out, yeah. Peop- <laughs> that's what it says. Yeah. Pe- people were screaming along so you couldn't even hear, hear yourself think, which is the idea. The singer took five, wiping her forehead with a hanky pulled from her watch band. Ooh, all right, how about them hostages, huh? The roof came off. Okay, this is for them. She went in to tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. But something happened. Instead of everybody singing along like I expected, one long table of 20 started pounding and chanting, Ayatollah, Asahola, Ayatollah, Asahola. And within a minute, the chant swept across the room until 200 people were thumping and stomping, Ayatollah, Asahola. The singer was drowned out. She stood there, hands on hips, totally thrown. The owner came exploding out of the kitchen. He was red-faced, pop-eyed, and wearing a polyester shirt covered with murals front and back. (laughs) He hissed in her ear, waving his arms like he was in a log-rolling contest, then ran back into the kitchen. The chanters were going full tilt. She started shouting into her mic, Hey, hey, kids, kids, look, this is a restaurant. It's for pleasure. If you got politics, you should take them outside. To her astonishment, everybody stopped chanting. They were listening to her. But instead of shifting into My My Delilah, she kept talking. She was on a philosophy roll. (laughs) Restaurants are for pleasure. They're for laughter and eating. Politics has no place in a restaurant. Okay, kids? No place. She umpire motions safe. Everybody was paying attention. She paused and winked at them. You're good kids. Then she slid into the house favorite, some old country ditty about a horny Italian mouse. In the cab back home, the black cab driver was wearing a ribbon, but it was green. Everybody sold out of yellow ones? Yellow ones what, he frowned at me in his rear view. The ribbon, hostage ribbon, where you been? Hostage ribbon? He jerked back like somebody had shoved smelling salts under his nose. This ain't no hostage ribbon. This is for Atlanta. Where you been? Thank you. Includes what we uh, like to call the formal part of the program. Does anyone have a question he would like to put to an author uh, who has read? Uh, if not, then we adjourn to the reception. Thank you. <laughs>